Take your Bibles out, and if you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 16 as we continue our journey through the uh, book of Acts. Looking this morning at the subject matter, Operation Liberation Begins. And uh, you'll notice just a few words into this verse this morning, uh, you see the pronoun we. So begins the we sections in the uh, book of Acts. And what that means, we know that Luke, in addition to writing the gospel of Luke, also penned the book of Acts. And we can see from this verse that Luke was also one of Paul's traveling companions. He was there on the scene. He was involved in the missionary work along with uh, Paul. Verse 11, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to uh, uh, Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great multitude so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. 
And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They've beaten us publicly, uncondemned. Men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Father, we thank you for what we see here. We see living examples of what Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Lord, may we never underestimate what you are able to do as we share Christ. Lord, thank you that you're in the soul-saving business. It doesn't matter where somebody has been in their life or what their status or position is in life. You're able to save them. Lord, I pray for that person who has come in here this morning. Maybe there's a tremendous guilt or burden they're carrying around in their lives. Or they've been thinking that somehow or another they can make it on their own. Lord, as you opened Lydia's heart to believe, we pray that this morning you would open their heart. And Lord, for those that have had that experience, may our hearts be filled with gratitude. With how you're forming the church. People made up from all backgrounds and all walks of life. The beauty of the bride of Christ. We're so different. And yet together with unified voice. You call on us to glorify you. Lord help us to do that. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. As you're seated I'm going to ask you to give your attention to a brief video. That's only about a minute and 44 seconds long. has just been issued by Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied Naval Forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France.
people of Western Europe, the hour of your liberation is approaching. All patriots, men and women, young and old, have a part to play in the achievement of final victory. This landing is but the opening phase of the campaign in Western Europe. Great battles lie ahead. I call upon all who love freedom to stand with us now. Keep your faith staunch. Our arms are resolute. Together we shall achieve victory. D-Day. <clears throat> D-Day was the day selected to begin the Allied invasion of Western Europe in World War II. Now, of course, the code name for this operation was Operation Overlord. It was the largest air, land, and sea invasion to date. And it occurred on June 6, 1944. The landing included over 5,000 ships, 11,000 airplanes, and over 150,000 men from America, Britain, and Canada. When it was over, the Allied forces had suffered nearly 10,000 casualties. And yet somehow, due to planning and preparation and due to the courage and and valor and sacrifice of the Allied forces, Europe had been breached and finally liberated. Now, prior to D-Day, the Allies conducted a large-scale deception campaign designed to mislead Hitler and the Germans where the Allied forces would be landing. By late August 1944, all of northern France had been liberated, and by the following spring, the Allies had defeated the Germans. The Normandy landings have been called the beginning of the end of the war in Europe. Now, folks, I use that illustration this morning because approximately 1,900 years previous to Eisenhower giving the command to begin Operation Overlord, a more significant liberation of Europe, spiritually speaking, began. And it began by the events of what we read in our text this morning in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and his other missionary traveling companions began to take the gospel for the very first time in to Europe. It's significant to see the first converts to Christ in Europe. On the one hand, there was a prominent, successful businesswoman by the name of Lydia. And then we see a down and outer, a little slave girl who is possessed with demonic powers. And finally, we see a Roman soldier who comes to Christ. Now folks, it would be difficult to find a more different and unique group than this. But what it shows is that people from all nationalities and walks of life need Jesus Christ. 
And what we see is the power of the gospel to liberate men and women out of the spiritual darkness that they live in. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the gospel liberates a seeking businesswoman. Pick up reading with me again in verse 13. Uh, Luke says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now Paul and his traveling companions travel first to Philippi. They land at Neapolis, a port city, and then they journey by foot. They walk 10 miles into this Macedonian city by the name of Philippi. Now Philippi had been taken in conquest in 356 B.C. by King Philip of Macedonia. Now you know who that is by who he was the father of. King Philip of Macedonia was the father of Alexander the Great. King Philip renamed it Philippi. And then the Romans captured it in 168 B.C. And in 42 B.C. they defeat the forces of Brutus and, and uh, Cassius. Or I should say the defeat of those forces by Octavian and, and Anthony took place just outside of the city. Octavian turned Philippi into a Roman colony and a military outpost for Rome. And what that meant is the residents of Philippi were not only considered Macedonian citizens, but they were also considered as Roman citizens. And what that meant is they were free of taxation and some of them, like the military personnel, were given large land grants in the area. Now, being a Roman city and a military outpost with a lot of servicemen may explain why there weren't even enough Jews at Philippi to have a synagogue. You see, all over the Roman Empire, when you got to a city, if there were at least 10 Jewish adult males they would have a synagogue, a place for the Jews to gather together and worship. But as Paul and Luke and, and Silas, as they get to Philippi, there's not even a synagogue. And so that uh, signifies there's not much of a Jewish population there. Now, why is that significant? Because Paul's practice was first to go into the synagogues and preach the gospel among the Jews. To the Jew first. And so what he and his companions do instead, they go down by the waterfront. You see, the waterfront provided enough water for ceremonial cleansings and religious services. And so when there was not a synagogue in town, often worshipers would gather down by the river. And that's what's going on here. 
They get outside just to the side of the river and they find a group of women praying. And one of them is a lady by the name of Lydia. She was a seller of purple goods from the city of Thyatira in Asia Minor. Thyatira was known for its dyed cloths and its purple dye. In fact, that industry had made the city of Thyatira quite wealthy and a lot of its citizens, Lydia being one of them, would take their trade on the road and and they would set up satellite areas around the world for the trade of purple dyes. Now what all this means is that Lydia was probably a very wealthy businesswoman. She was very successful. And notice what she's doing. She's given attention to the words spoken by the Apostle Paul. Now I think of Jesus' words in Mark chapter 10 to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler came to him and, and uh, Jesus said, What you need to do, young man, is you need to sell all of your goods, give away to the poor, and come and follow me. And the Bible says he wouldn't do that because he was a very wealthy young man. And Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, I want to tell you, it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus didn't say that about everybody. Jesus didn't condemn wealth. It's not wealth that's bad. It's the love of money. But so oftentimes we see among the wealthy that they don't see their need of Christ. Folks, think of a lot of the people you rub shoulders with every day. They just don't see their need of a day of worship, of giving attention to the Lord. They don't see their need of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're quite comfortable in life. They think they've got everything they need. Why do they need God? And they don't realize that it's only by the grace of God that they have what they have. But we run into people like this all the time. And so Jesus said it is very difficult for those who have an abundance to be saved. But it doesn't mean they can't be. Lydia is a case in point of a wealthy woman who was seeking the Lord. The Bible says here that she was a God-fearer. Now, we've met other God-fearers in the book of Acts before. There was the Ethiopian eunuch. He served in the queen's court, and he had made that journey all the way up to Jerusalem uh, to worship. And while he was there, no doubt he had bought a copy of the scroll of Isaiah, and he was out in the desert riding in his chariot, and he was reading from Isaiah 53, that passage about the Messiah would come, first of all, as a suffering servant who would give himself as a sacrifice for sin. And Philip was able to join the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot and preach the gospel to him. Tell him about the Lord Jesus using that text. And the Ethiopian eunuch came to faith in Christ. He was a God-fearing man. And then in Acts chapter 10, we meet Cornelius. A Roman centurion. Again, he's a God-fearing man. He is a man who is seeking God. 
And what does the Bible say in Jeremiah 29? That when you seek for the Lord and when you seek for him with all of your heart, you will find him. Jesus said in Matthew 5 in one of the Beatitudes, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Is there a spiritual hunger in your heart? Is there a thirst in your heart? Well, there was in Lydia's heart. She was a God-fearing woman and she was seeking after the Lord. I want you to notice what that says about her. That despite everything that she had accomplished in her life as a woman, a successful businesswoman, nonetheless, there was an empty hole in her heart that nothing she possessed could satisfy. She needed the Lord. And the Bible says here that as Paul was preaching, no doubt he was preaching the word of God about Jesus, that Lydia was giving attention to what Paul was saying. She was listening to Paul preach. And the Bible says that the Lord opened her heart. Now folks, that's the divine side of salvation. Theologians speak of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And what we see here is the divine side in that. How God moves, how God works in an individual's heart to draw them to faith in Jesus to where they believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. Now the Greek construction is very interesting in Ephesians. Because on the surface, it wouldn't make sense. You see, grace and faith are... Feminine forms of those words. And so this, the the pronoun referring back to them, ought to be also in the feminine. But it's not, it's in the neuter. And and, uh, grammarians tell us what that means is the Bible is saying everything about salvation. Grace, faith from beginning to end. Everything involved in somebody's salvation is a gift of God. It starts with God moving on the human heart. And that's what's going on with with Lydia here. The Lord moved her heart and opened her eyes to believe. And Lydia was saved and immediately baptized. Now baptism doesn't save anybody. And yet the New Testament commands believers to be baptized. It is the first step of obedience in following the Lord Jesus. You see, baptism is the gospel being communicated through an action. The person is lowered into the water signifying the death to their old life without Christ. Their old life is being buried. And then there's they're raised up out of the water. It signifies their new life in Christ. And this whole thing of baptism also signifies them being united with Christ, united with him in the likeness of his death, and united with him likewise in the likeness of his resurrection. And so it is a, it is a picture of the gospel. You've heard the old saying before, a picture paints a thousand words. That's what baptism is. And folks in the New Testament 
someone's baptism was their profession of faith. Now we add in different steps today. People come forward and they're presented before a body of believers. A couple of weeks, a couple of months down the road, we schedule their baptism. But in the New Testament, we see when the gospel was preached and somebody came to faith in Christ, usually, immediately, they were baptized because baptism was a person's identification with Christ. It was their profession of faith. And that's why it's so important and why it's commanded. Now, notice what she did next. She invites Paul and his traveling companions into her home. Hospitality was so important in the New Testament. You see, motels were generally places of ill repute in ancient times. An honest person, an upright person certainly didn't want to stay in a motel. It was a place of prostitution and partying and all kinds of thievery and nonsense. And so early believers would open their homes to other believers as missionary teams would travel around the world. Lydia wants her home to be their home while they're in Philippi. Now no doubt her house also became the meeting place of the church at Philippi. Folks, no wonder... That the church at Philippi was such a gracious congregation to the Apostle Paul because their first member was such a gracious lady. We know that a church so oftentimes, a church takes on the personality of, of you and me. Each local church takes on the personality of its people. Lydia was this gracious, hospitable woman. And so the church at Philippi became that, that way. But here again, we see the gospel liberating this prominent businesswoman who was seeking the Lord. Second thing I want you to notice with me this morning, the gospel liberates a satanically possessed slave girl. Pick up reading with me in verse 16. It says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, and this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I want you to notice that as Paul and the believers continue on at Philippi, and, and they began continually traveling around the city and going back and forth down to the waterfront, here is this slave girl who is following them all around. And everywhere she goes... She never ceases to cry out, These men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Now folks, it's true. It's absolutely true what she was saying. But Paul is able to discern that something not spiritually correct is going on here. You know, it's interesting that in the Gospels when Jesus encountered demon-possessed people, you know what they were saying? They were saying the identical thing. And that shouldn't surprise us because the demons know who Jesus is. Now remember who the demons are. 
The demons are fallen angels. And that means there was a day that the demons now were once angels in heaven... And they were around the throne of God and they were worshiping the triune God. And so they knew who Jesus was because Jesus didn't begin, his life didn't begin at the incarnation. He's the son of God from all the way into eternity past. So they knew exactly who Jesus was. There was a day that they worshiped him before they followed the evil one. And so in the Gospels, everywhere Jesus would encounter demons, they would cry out this same phrase. I think of that passage of Scripture in Mark chapter 5, where Jesus went among the the Gerasenes, and and a a man filled with a legion of demons came out from among the tombs. And what did he say? The legion of demons said the exact same thing that, that this slave girl is saying here. You're the son of the most high God. Now there's lots of other names of God in the Bible. Personal names. Intimate names of God. In the scripture that his children call, call him. Adonai, Lord. He's our shepherd. He's our refuge. He's our strength. But, but demons don't know him in that way. But they do know him as the most high God. And so that's how... They're identifying Paul and Silas and Luke as servants of the Most High God. And so Paul turns to this slave girl and he commands the demon to come out of her, which it does. But this doesn't sit too well with her owners. Uh, Folks, this shows that her owners had no regard for her whatsoever. They should have rejoiced. That this slave girl was finally free of the bondage that she was in. But they didn't care about her. You see, that's how cruel of a bondage that slavery is. Slavery doesn't care about the individual, only what the individual can do for you. And what her owners pick up on now and discern is their paycheck is gone. Because it was through this spirit that she was able to be a fortune teller. Now folks, as you travel down the road and you see these signs out, palm readers, fortune teller, there's not a doubt in my mind that some of those are just scam artists. That's all. But you know what? Some of them do what they do by the power of the evil one. The Bible talks about that. That's why the Bible condemns going to fortune tellers or palm readers or necromancers. That that would be people who try to communicate with the dead and get, get signs and things from the dead to tell people. The Bible condemns that because the Bible says... Some of them are for real. They, they do what they do through the power of the devil. Isaiah says in Isaiah 8, God is saying to his people, when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people rather inquire of their God? 
Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony? In other words, God's people ought to go to God's word. Well, the beautiful thing here is that there is no one who is so deep in bondage, the bondage of darkness. There is nobody so overcome with the power of the enemy that Jesus, the light of the world, cannot reach them and save them. Going back to that story in Mark chapter 5 for a moment, there was a man with this legion of demons in him. Jesus set him free and then all that man wanted to do was to follow Jesus. What a radical transformation he experienced. And what a radical transformation this young slave girl experiences. But her owners are now the ones who continue to be enslaved in darkness. She's been set free. They're still enslaved. And they're mad as a wet hornet. Because their income's dried up. And so they haul Paul and Luke and Silas before the authorities. And notice the exaggeration that they use. They say these men are upsetting the whole city by their Jewish customs. Now remember there weren't enough Jews in Philippi to even have a synagogue. So I I doubt very much disturbance was being caused. And by the way even at that remember Judaism was a legal religion among the Romans. Romans accepted Judaism, sanctioned it. They didn't sanction Christianity yet. That didn't come along till later years, around the time of Constantine. But, but Judaism was accepted. And, and so their whole argument here is nothing more than, than just excuses and exaggeration. But you know what I think it shows? I think it shows... When the public turns against Christians, they will try to reach and grab at just about anything. Even something that's not rational or logical. They'll try to use anything. That's what they're doing here. Well, they succeed in getting Paul and Silas stripped and beaten and tossed in jail until a further investigation can be carried out. And that brings us to the third thing. The gospel liberates a strategically placed Roman soldier. Now I mentioned earlier that Philippi was a Roman colony. Now that meant that Rome strategically placed Roman citizens and Roman military in that town. That's what was going on at Philippi. Think a moment if you were the Roman emperor or the powers that be in Rome and you had outlying cities that you had turned into Roman colonies. What would you want to do to ensure that those distant cities stayed under your thumb? You would strategically place certain Roman citizens, especially Roman military personnel, in those outlying colonies. And that's exactly what Rome did with soldiers. And in exchange for a soldier being willing to leave Italy or even Rome itself and go somewhere like Philippi, 
Rome would give the Roman soldier a large tract of land free of charge and exempt him from taxes for a lifetime as long as he stayed in that place. That's the type of person this guy was. And being a Roman soldier, he would have been tough as nails. You see, just as a basic part of their service, basic part of their training, every Roman soldier had to be ready in full uniform, in full attire, military attire. He had to march 20 miles a day carrying 80 pounds every day. That's just a bare minimum that he had to do. Romans, uh, Roman soldiers were very powerful men back then. I, I've read before, I don't know how true this is, I don't, I don't even know how you would verify it, but somebody once said that our very best athletes of today, our strongest and fastest NFL players, for instance, would just be the average man of ancient times. Because the way they lived. The way they worked. How they walked and they carried things and all these great feats of work that they did and all this lifting they did just as a normal everyday part of their life. They were strong men and Roman soldiers were some of the best of those. He's the one who's put in charge of keeping Paul and Silas in jail. He takes his job very seriously because you'll notice he doesn't just lock them up in jail, but he takes them all the way to the inner prison and, and not only locks them in that room, but also puts their feet in stocks. I love what Jerry Vines writes about this. He said, think about, think about Paul and Silas being in those stocks. Do we hear them crying out at midnight? Here's Silas saying, Paul, you know what? I'm just so homesick for mama. I just want to get out of here and go back home. I can't believe they turned on us this way. And Paul says, Silas, I feel the same way. I've got such a massive headache. Would you pass me that bottle of ty Tylenol? That's not what they were doing at all. They were singing and praising God at midnight. And again, Jerry Vines writes, God got so happy at that singing. They must have been singing something like victory in Jesus. God got to tapping his foot so hard in heaven that there was an earthquake on the earth. And these prisoners are set free and the doors open. Now this scared the jailer to death. Because the natural assumption would be all your prisoners have escaped. And folks, that meant death to a Roman soldier. You see, a soldier's pay wasn't simply docked. If a Roman soldier's captives got away, he paid with his life. That was his punishment. And he knows that. And so he's just going to speed up the process and go ahead. And he, he doesn't want to be tortured and then killed by, by his contemporaries. So he's just going to go ahead and, and take his life and make it easier. And Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. We're all here. Well, he goes running in there and throws himself before him and says, 
Men, what must I do to be saved? You see, the Roman soldier, if he would have had any idea about, uh, about a sovereign God, surely he had to know through all these unusual events that were taking place, if there's a God in heaven, this God is trying to speak to him and do something. He's witnessing something here that human words alone can't explain. And so he knows he needs to, he needs to know this God who looks after his own children the way he's looked after Paul and Silas. But what a great question he asked. Question of the ages. What must I do to be saved? Most important question anybody will ever ask. And notice what Paul didn't say. Paul didn't say like a religionist, like the Judaizers that we've already bumped into in the book of Acts. Paul didn't say, well, you need to, you need to do this and that. And you need to keep all the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to become a good Jew first. And then after you've been a Jew for a period of time, then you can become a Christian. No, Paul said very simply, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, the New Testament word believe is not like our word believe is so casual. But the New Testament word is a very strong word that, that means you're going in one direction. You repent of your sins and you turn the other way and you put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And that's what this guy does. And to those who do that, Jesus says, He who comes to me, I will in no way cast out. Just come to Jesus and believe. He does. And he leads his family to do the same thing. And, and then he takes them and gets them all cleaned up and he feeds them. Folks, he's a grateful man. Think about Zacchaeus for a minute. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. What did Zacchaeus do after he got saved? Lord, if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will repay them fourfold. Changed man. This Roman soldier is a changed man. You know, if somebody says that they're saved and they're in Christ, and yet... They have not become a new creation in Christ. There is no fruit in their life, no evidence of being a Christian. You know why? They're not a Christian. Because when a man meets Jesus, it changes his life. This guy's born again. He's changed. He's different. Don't you know the church service the next week down by that riverside or in Lydia's home? That had to have been an interesting church service because first of all, in walks Lydia. The successful businesswoman. Then in walks this little down and out slave girl's been under the bondage of Satan. But now she's free in Jesus. And then in walks this Roman soldier. And all together they're able to begin singing Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind but now I see. What a beautiful service that must have been. 
God changes people from all walks of life. This morning, I want to ask you, do you need to believe? Do you need to come trusting Christ and Christ alone? Hear me, Christ and Christ alone. Remember, the well-to-do need Jesus. The well-to-do person that has everything at their hand's disposal. They're just as lost as anybody else without Jesus. You can have a high position in the world. You can have the, a, a job your friends are envious of. You can have a paycheck more than any of your neighbors. But unless you've been born again, you are as lost and as in darkness as a person could be. I don't care how good you think you are. You need Christ. And maybe you're down and outer. Maybe you'd say, preacher, you, you wouldn't believe where I've been in my life and what I've been exposed to and what I've done. Doesn't matter. Jesus can take all that away. Forgive you too. Nobody's so deep in sin and darkness that Jesus can't reach down and lift you up. Here's a Roman soldier giving his life to protect others' freedoms. And yet, he was in bondage before meeting Jesus. You might be in bondage. Again, Christ can set you free. Come to him. I would assume most have done that. And if you have, just think a moment about the beauty of the church. There is not one person here who can stand up and say, I can make it on my own. Everybody here is only saved because of the Lord's amazing grace. And think of what God does in putting the bride of Christ together. You look out among us and you can find people as different from one another as night and day. Totally different backgrounds. You can have a Russell Willis, dignified, turn in your Bible. You can have a Sam the Baptist, praise Jesus, get all excited about it. And God puts them together in one family, the, the beauty of the bride of Christ. And God saves us to where together, together, we can magnify the name of the Lord. You know what that means? That means that those who have experienced God's amazing grace, this Thanksgiving season, at bare minimum, you have a lot to be grateful for. Amen.